Hey, if you're loving Creative Mind, check out some of our past episodes where we dive deep into topics like children's book illustration, video game design, filmmaking, and of course, the most important topic of all, how do you make a living as an artist? So please hit subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on so you never miss an episode. And check out the show notes for links to our Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube page for even more great content. As an industrial designer and as a creator and someone that's developing my own brand and my own products, when I look at this, I don't look at this as a beautiful piece of furniture. I look at this and I say, someone had to experiment, test, fail, invest more time and more money to understand how do I develop these four pieces of wood veneer in such a way that one is appealing and two, it's unique. This is a companion episode to our previous talk with industrial designer Zach Caleb, but it's also a good primer on anyone interested in furniture or industrial design, interior architecture, interior design, really where that kernel of the idea started with me. Why should I care about this idea? This idea that seems to run through so much of our design thinking and visual style for quite a long time. And, and that idea is, or more the question is, what is the deal with mid-century modern? You focused on, on automotive, you talk about surfaces, you talk about wanting to create beautiful design. And now we're sitting in your home in Nashville and you are a, would you say bespoke furniture designer or how do you describe your studio now and, and this pivot or this change in career, if it is a change? So there are a lot of terms that define someone or a product that is made in limited quantities. But when I'm selling my brand to someone, I explain to them that for one, I'm an industrial designer and that my business is creating and understanding a product which is furniture that fits the needs of someone and we can do that on a custom level right and so bespoke furniture yeah it's one or two pieces that are really extra special if it was up to me i would have a thousand of these you know out gotcha. in the world gotcha. but okay. i would want a thousand different versions they're all the same concept. Okay. It's the same design, right? The design doesn't change. The theme doesn't change. But each one, the whole point from my business is each one can be uniquely tailored to the user, right? Because we build everything, right? You can choose the materials. That's very common in interior design industry yeah. and furniture industry. Yeah. You can choose what kind of cloth do you want, mm -hmm. right? You want leather, you want black leather, you want Italian leather, mm -hmm. you want hand-dyed leather. Yeah, there's that whole fetish of what you, know, what right. you want, yeah. Do you want non-leather leather? <laughs> you know what I mean? But what's not available is full range of understanding. Yes, it can be custom length. Yes, it can be custom height. Yes, when I say that, I mean the arm height where you rest your arm can be at the exact height for you, right? Now, a lot of custom furniture makers, when you order something, you are still ordering, you get three versions to choose from. It's still it a hobby kit. From a proportional point of view, right? You get the version that's 
four feet long, the version that's six feet long, and the version that's eight feet long. And then when you start looking at different types of product development in, in terms of furniture, you start looking at modularity, yeah. right? And so again, getting back to the way I sell my concept of my business plan is I understand all the materials it takes to develop something. I also understand the math behind making something usable mm -hmm. and I'm a designer. Mm -hmm. I can conceptualize things that have not been built yet, right? Which is also the job of an industrial designer. Right. You're always looking at trends or you're looking at cultures and you're consistently having to self-inspire on what's next. And quite honestly, for a lot of interior designers, they don't get it. Yeah. yeah. They just, yeah. It's too much for them to realize sometimes that you can make something from nothing. <laughs> you know, and I, right. and I don't mean it in such a literal sense, but I mean a lot of interior designers. But to, but to a point, it is a little. You are being very literal. It is, you, yeah. It's like, what do you want? I want a couch. Well, it's got to. You know, everybody knows what a couch is, but your custom design and looking at your work, it's like I would not have thought of that. Right. And yeah, an interior designer is like, hey, my client likes this picture, and they gave me a budget. That's, I'm an interior designer. Now. Exactly. And not to slight not, yeah, interior exactly. designers, sure. but they're always pulling from inspiration that is available. Mm -hmm. You're always being inspired by something that is out there. Mm -hmm. And like you said, that out there is already dated to the design community and people involved and say, well, yeah, we were designing that five years ago before it came to market. Potentially, yes, because you do have, I mean, my room specifically, we're surrounded by a lot of pieces that are very old, mm -hmm. right? And okay. just because they're old, it doesn't mean that they're not on trend. Yeah. Right? And I'm going to hammer you on those. Sure. As somebody who's remodeled my house and now spending actual money mm -hmm. as a grown adult, I'm going to hammer you on some of those trends and why I have to do that. Yeah. And those trends can vary by location and culture again. Yeah. But when you're being inspired by something, a lot of interior designers, and again, I'm not in the interior design field, but mm -hmm. through my experience of working with interior designers, they're inspired by other things that are already out there. Mm -hmm. And most of the time, it's other pieces of furniture, mm. right? Whereas an industrial designer is taught in school and in design studios as a professional to be inspired by other things that okay. are not physical relationships, right? Okay, so if you want to design couches, the last thing, if ever, is looking really at couches. You don't open up the, the book O Couches and go, let's start thinking. Sort of. Okay. <laughs> so you need to understand what is a sofa, mm -hmm. right? Just like anything else, if you're going to be providing information to someone else, you need yourself to know that information first, mm -hmm. right? If you're selling a product to someone, you have to assume they don't know anything about it. Right. They're going to be looking to you okay. for all of that information. Okay. So if you're creating a sofa from scratch, you better know some of the normal stuff, like mm -hmm. what is the normal seat height mm -hmm. of a sofa, right? How thick is the cushion normally considered to be on a comfortable sofa, mm -hmm. right? And comfortable is a quote unquote word yeah. because that varies for everybody. Yeah, that's variable for but sure. what is that range, right? And so when you're looking at those kinds of things, and this goes back to industrial design actually, which is you need to have the discipline to understand that you better know everything about sofas 
before you start looking at other stuff that's not a sofa, mm-hmm. right? So if you're being inspired by a waterfall and you're like, yeah, I'm going to do all of my conceptual drawings for my new sofa, and it's all based on the rock formations around a waterfall, the way the water flows over, maybe even the, the dynamic sense of the fact that water is always moving, mm-hmm. right? Does your sofa have something that maybe moves or is adjustable, mm-hmm. right? to conform to the user. Is it heavy looking on purpose visually because rocks are heavy? Mm-hmm. You know, all of these different things. This is something that industrial designers are taught to look at. Inspiration oh, wow. boards, right? Okay. Even in my class that I was teaching, one of the assignments every single week was to continue to build your inspiration board. One board was brand right? Inspiration from the brand you're working for. Second board, inspiration of anything besides the literal sense of what you're creating. Hmm. Okay. So in the case of an automobile or in the case of a sofa, any image can go on that board as long as it's not an automobile or a sofa. (laughs) Okay. Right. Okay. And then on the other board, the branding board, you better have a lot of pictures of sofas. Oh, wow. Right? Okay. Pictures of how they're constructed. Pictures of quality, right? Pictures of identification of the brand, right? There's a lot of sofas out there. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of different brands. Yeah. They all look different. And even each brand expands their line to appeal to a lot of different people. So from a furniture sense, it can be really tough to have just one chair. Mm-hmm. Because you're limiting and you're also looking at yourself and saying, I'm confident that this one chair is going to be so great that I only need to provide the consumer with one choice. Yeah, I, I, that happened. You're sitting in one of those. Right. <laughs> you're, you're sitting in an Ames chair. And exactly. That, yeah, that's the end of, end of list. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And for a lot of people, it, it really is. Yeah. You know, but the fact of the matter is when you're looking at building a brand, right, and you look at large companies... They have a range of offerings. Mm-hmm. And depending on the culture of that company, that range of offerings, they might all tie together. For instance, let's just use a really easy example. A company that uses wood in their products. Mm-hmm. Maybe all of their products have the same species of wood. Okay. Right? And that's how you identify. Right. Yeah. So, everybody likes black walnut or right. maple or that's the thing. That's so, the, where you're the starting point. Doesn't matter what it looks like. Doesn't matter if it's a chair or a sofa or a table. If it's got black walnut in it, it comes from brand XYZ. Mm-hmm. That's how they've decided to tie the, their products together. Mm-hmm. Right? Then you have the flip side of a brand, which is... We are going to use a wide range of materials, right? To Mm. appeal to different people and different consumers and different cultures, but they're all going to visually be identifiable. Okay. Right? From the form. Okay. And this goes back to surfacing. Okay. Right? And that's part of my business, Fluxco Design, which is all of the products that I develop that are part of a product line that have a name, for instance, this is called the Luca. Mm-hmm. You will see the same surfacing in the same attention to those details on every piece that's got the name Luca on it. Okay. Right? Okay. So the Luca sofa, the Luca chair, 
the Luca Vanity, mm -hmm. right? Those will all have the same style leg, the same proportion, right? Unless customized by the customer. Mm -hmm. So that it doesn't matter what material I choose, someone can always see it with their eyes and know that it's a Fluxco piece. We talked about this and you wanted me to bring it up and I, I was happy to bring it up because I think a lot of people who are switching gears, and I wanna, we'll talk about why you switched over to furniture in a bit, but the, the DIY maker vibe and you know we've all spent the last year and a half in COVID, so I've learned how to do drywall. I will never do it again because my drywall looks like garbage and thankfully the guy I hired to fix it <laughs> covered up my mistakes and I saved a whopping $500 doing my one wall of drywall. Too many people and so many people think they can do it. Mm -hmm. And this is not going to poo-poo on everybody who does good work, but there's a lot of people who are doing very, quote, on heavy, heavy air quotes, good work. And you're like, well, you can physically make it mm -hmm. and sell it, but is it good? Is it having that industrial design background? And from what you're saying and from what I'm seeing, the answer is no. Mm -hmm. But why is it so popular? Or why is that maker guy mm -hmm. becoming so popular and his work getting out there as much as it seems to be? Yeah, I think one term you just used, good. Right? <laughs> what makes yeah. it good yeah. is just something I want to touch on real quick. An industrial designer... And the education that you get through the program, when you are describing how you are interpreting a design of any kind, you are being taught to articulate what about the design is successful. Not okay. necessarily, that looks good. Yeah. Or, I like it. Mm -hmm. You know, for my students, oh yeah, that's a really Great design. There's some Ikea stuff that looks good. Yeah, well, I good or great, the term yeah. itself, though, is what, what I'm getting at here is understanding why someone thinks it looks good. Okay. Right? Why is it appealing? What makes it appealing? Mm. Surface treatment, mm -hmm. proportion, color, materials used. You know, you can elevate something just in material. Something that's made out of laminate, a cube that acts as a side table made out of laminate in a cube that's identical, covered in marble. Mm, sure. There's nothing different. Yeah. Just the materials yeah. that have been applied, yeah. right? So why is the laminate one not good? Right. It's the same. Yeah. What functions, right? It could be better depending on what the function is. Maybe you don't want to worry about coffee stains mm. or wine spills on your... $3,000 slab of marble mm -hmm. that you just cut up to make your cube. Yeah. Okay, well, you use laminate, that's $100 to cover the cube, and it actually outperforms the marble. Mm. But why is it not good? Yeah. Or good, in quotes, yeah. right? So as an industrial designer, you're always looking at things you it, it makes you a horrible consumer <laughs> yeah be it must be. <laughs> it's like the film director watching a commercial going, oh my god yeah you're a horrible consumer you basically hate everything available to you for some reason or another mm -hmm. right and 
you're a terrible client to work for in every aspect of the work. <laughs> no matter what you're employing somebody to do, your brain is never going to stop pushing the limitations <laughs> of what you think that person's skill set is and at what level they should be achieving those skills. Sure. Right? Yeah. And so when you're talking about good or great or bad, being able to analyze what's in front of your eyes and be able to articulate with words what about it is bad. And that's got to be difficult. Well, it is, but that's why you're trained. Yeah. That's, I, that's the exact training you go through because when you're telling a sculptor that's below you, let's say you're a design sculptor manager now, mm -hmm. right? Or you're a design manager in a furniture department and you tell the designer, that's not good. Mm -hmm. How does that help the designer? Yeah. It yeah. doesn't. And we've all heard it. We've all heard yeah, it. That's I don't like crap. it. I don't like it. Yeah, I don't like it. Why? Okay. Well, uh, what, what about it is crappy? Yeah. You know, does it not fit with the brand? Is it not the right scale? Is it not strong enough to hold a person? Mm. If it's a chair, mm. like why is it not good? And these are all the things that industrial designers can tap into that a DIY or a maker might not necessarily tap into. Sure. It doesn't mean they can't. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't mean they don't know. Yeah but it's inherently built into an industrial designer Yeah, through their training. Whereas a DIYer, it might, they may learn that a chair needs to be a certain size and a certain height and hold a certain amount of weight after they've built 20 chairs. And it's not that an industrial designer won't do the same process and learn the same things. It's just by the time they get to chair number 20, they've fully developed that product. Whereas chair number 20 for a DIYer or a maker potentially might just be a successful shape that holds a certain amount of weight. I don't and know then, how it got there, but it's working. Right. I'm going to keep my fingers crossed and hopefully sell another 20. And so once they've achieved that, what I call the base structure, mm -hmm. then you can start developing on top of that to create your likeness or your brand of mm -hmm. chair. Mm -hmm. Once you've established, okay, yeah. The structure, the chassis, if you will, if you want to go in car terms or mm -hmm. transportation terms, the chassis is substantial enough, strong enough, it's tested, right? Now I can start putting my aesthetic on okay. top of it. Whereas an industrial designer, they're thinking about that all at one time from the start. Got it. Okay. Right? So, so why then did you move into the world of furniture? Was that always something that appealed to you or was it something that was different or uh, a new challenge? Well, I grew up in a house with a lot of antique furniture. Okay. And most of that stuff was accessible to me. Okay. It wasn't like I'm not allowed in that room or I can't <laughs> yeah. use that thing. Right. I was just raised. The buffet know, in the china cabinet you've, in the room you've never stepped foot in. <laughs> right. And I was just raised that, you know, you respect these things and you get to enjoy them. Okay. And so being around that stuff, being around items like that from the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, it was always inspiring to me. There, there is something, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think anybody that 
starts to get into design, looks at some of that old stuff and, you know, wow, that dovetailing. You start opening drawers, go, ooh, dovetailing. Oh, yeah. that's real dovetailing. Right. Oh, that's, you know, all of us have built something from Ikea. Mm -hmm. And then immediately think of our grandparents' bookcase and go, oh, I get why this was 1995 and this one is in an antique store now that I can't afford. Right. It's a different, it's an object. It's right. not a thing. And it's also, it's just a different philosophy on how things are created now. Yeah. And so when you think about dovetailing as an example versus something that is what we call a box build mm -hmm. or a box kit, yeah, right? knockdown stuff, flat pack, yeah. that kind of thing, that's where you start looking at the makers group, mm. right? And people are starting to define the makers, in my opinion, as someone that's willing to take the time to make something that's going to last. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean that it's a brand that's being represented well. It doesn't mean that it functions the way it's intended to function necessarily, although it might, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. But the categorization of maker, in my opinion, is slowly becoming a sense of, if I want something that's going to last, I want to purchase it from a maker. Yeah. I don't want to go to Ikea. Right. Even though the development and the design process and everything that went into creating that IKEA product is probably a thousand times better. You know, and we, we did poopoo in IKEA, but as you know, anybody that's got kids, IKEA kid furniture and a little bit more extra care and building it and some gorilla glue and mm -hmm. hey, I'm gonna learn how to do this better, it is pretty good. But yeah, that does make sense where a maker, I made this brick of a piece. Yeah. But is it good <laughs> right and again when we, i i skew away from the terms adjectives like good and great yeah because it's more about did it go through development yeah you know the crappy ikea stuff that people talk about sometimes you are talking literally about millions of dollars in development absolutely right yeah. and you are getting to use that end result of that millions and millions of dollars and tens of thousands of hours actual humans creating this stuff for you to be able to buy it at an affordable price, use it safely as long as it's being constructed according to the instructions, mm -hmm. right? Yep. And when you're done with it, it's been purposely created and purposely designed and developed for you to feel like you can discard it and not have remorse for that. All of that is part of the plan, right? And so for a maker and people that are starting to get behind the term maker, I have a difficult time with it because what are you defining with the term maker? Yeah. Right? From my point of view, anybody that is capable of creating, and I use that in a very broad sense, you're a maker. Mm. Okay. Right? You are an artist, you can create a painting, you're a maker. You're a baker and you make specialty cakes or non-specialty cakes. You're a maker, mm -hmm. right? You are creating something using the skills that you have developed or tools that are available to you, right? And you have those capabilities. Mm -hmm. So you are a maker. Technically, yes, I'm a maker. Everybody is, yeah. right? In my opinion. Yeah. And that's why the term is being used too loosely in my yeah, opinion. Yeah, it's giving it a, a cachet that it hasn't quite earned. Right. And yeah. a lot of people are equating high quality to maker 
and makers, quote unquote, might be using materials that are going to last longer than non-maker products, mm -hmm. but are they being developed with the same sense of usability mm -hmm. for the consumer overall, right? And what is the branding for this stuff, right? And you don't necessarily have to identify with a brand if you're a maker. You could make a million different things yeah. and you could be inspired by a million different inspirations. Mm -hmm. And they can all be the same quality because you're the one developing them mm. and building them, right? Mm. So brand isn't everything. But when you're trying to present a brand and you're working to build an identity visually mm. and you're being sifted in with the people that are not building a brand, that's when that distinction gets lost in the mm. confusion of working with an industrial designer versus working with a maker that distinction gets lost. Yeah, I can see that, but it, it, you've explained it where it makes more sense, where it's like, okay, we'll use Ikea as the example, like in the box you made, well, Ikea makes a, an end table. It's great. It costs $20 and if I knock it, spill it, stain it, chip it, no big deal. But if somebody makes that exact same thing in maple, but a copy of it, great, okay, it's good, but maybe I actually want something that fits a brand or fits a, a theme and a style and and that's where that industrial design comes in where it's like well that ikea thing was good enough mm -hmm. but my bed is higher than that the nightstand's too low to my bed right and you know i'm gonna roll over and it's gonna hit me in the eye on the corner it'd be nice to have something properly made and that's where that industrial design thinking starts to come into of how i'm making it for me as mm -hmm. opposed to, eh, there's a million of them that are good enough. Right. Okay. And I think it's important to touch on that people And that's that a very are, loose interpretation right, too. Right, <laughs> people that are categorized as makers, they can build and create well-made products sure. that are yeah. going to last a long time. It's again, it goes back to understanding the background of how to articulate why something is going to be appealing. I know with industrial designers, and you know, when I've started to look at industrial design and anybody who starts, it, when they're in art school and you start looking, you poke your head in the, into the industrial design department, you're like, well, I'm not, I don't even know what's going on here. This is mad science going on here. There's sparks and flames and smoke and drawing. And like you said, pictures of waterfalls next to cars and couches, you're like, I just came here to draw pictures. Yeah. When you're building a design theme and a brand, and in your, your brand here in, in furniture, what was the, the start of that? Where did this all come from? Well, the start of it came from wanting to reach the end user more fluidly. As an industrial designer and more particularly a professional sculptor in the design industry, automotive industry, I would say that 99 out of 100 times you are discarding your work. <laughs> right, okay. Um, whether it be a napkin sketch or a full-on one-to-one scale model that's been fully painted and presented <laughs> and was not chosen. Right. right? <laughs> it is heartbreaking seeing all those and rapid prototypes just go into the dumpster of love. And I'm not talking love. about rapid prototypes. I'm talking about a clay model oh, that's geez. been hand-sculpted by a team for a year, maybe even two. And it just goes in the... Goes in the garbage. Oh, Scale models is what we call them, but basically small versions yeah. of different design concepts that 
are they are blood, sweat, and tears of a human being. They yeah. are not made by computers. Yeah. Right? And time after time after time, you can continue to be inspired by the new ideas that are being developed and exploring how to break through different boundaries in a scale model and try to bring that to production. Mm -hmm. But eventually you're going to start to realize you're going to have to make a choice, right? Okay. Are you going to accept the fact that you are always going to be working within limitations physically and guidelines that might be dictated by the government mm -hmm. that whatever area you're working in, sure. as well as the brand identity guidelines? You can't do that because it's not on brand, brand right? right? <laughs> if you are okay with that, then you can continue down that path and probably be pretty happy. If you are the kind of person like myself that wants to continue to explore how to manipulate materials in ways that maybe they're not designed for, what other exploration can you do that is outside of the brand but could reinvigorate it, mm -hmm. right? But you're not being allowed to do that, yeah. right? All those kinds of things, that's a whole nother persona that operates outside of that industry okay more or less okay right and if you're that person you're either continuously frustrated forever <laughs> as long as you stay in that exact profession mm -hmm. right or you find other avenues okay right whether you're doing a side job yeah. or you have a hobby right and you stick with it still but for me it was more about wanting to see the end user interact with the product on a one-on-one -on -one basis almost, mm -hmm. which I've gotten to experience that with automobiles where you meet somebody that's driving the car that you worked on, mm -hmm. but it's passed through thousands yeah. and thousands of hands, yeah. right? And it's a little bit of an ego stroke in a way, but pretty much but you know, we didn't get into this business not to have our egos right, right. But creating <laughs> something that's going to a particular person and then having that person reciprocate the joy of the process, not just the piece, mm. is the most inspiring thing you could ever have. Oh, wow. Right? And so for me, furniture is a nice blend of having to stay disciplined Okay. Right? Because it does need to sit at a certain height. It does have to be strong enough for a lot of different types of people to sit on it. Mm -hmm. From a usability point of view, you have to consider men and women, mm -hmm. old and young. Yeah. Materials point of view, you have to consider, okay, is this an elevated piece? Mm -hmm. Are we using materials that aren't intended to be sat on a lot? Or the table, that table is used once a year. Okay. Right? Yeah. For Thanksgiving. Looking not for cooking. <laughs> right. Or is this a table that's going in a dining room and the family's going to use it every day? Mm -hmm. And which one is more inspiring? Is it more inspiring to create something where family dinners and family conversations through generations are going to happen? Or is it more inspiring to develop and design and build the piece that might be in the family for generations, but it's not part of the family? Right? It's this beautiful marble table that sits in the dining room and gets used once a year. 
Okay. It's this still, is the museum piece. This is that show piece. It's this still is awesome. That passed on through generations. Right. It's still piece. awesome to build. Yeah. It's still fun to design. And most likely, it's usually more fun to design because you get to break through different boundaries because right. it doesn't have to be as usable. Right. They're only going right? to sit in it once. It doesn't matter if it's not the most comfortable. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Right. And so for me, I get to experience both of those things. Oh, wow. Okay. And that's uniquely different than the automobile industry as a whole. Sure. You are so far removed from the end user, except in some very, very unique situations, right? That you don't even really know mm. who it's going to go to. Yeah. Right. But when you start building that personal relationship with a client, and I enjoy most working directly with the client, not through an interior designer and then to a client. When you're working directly with the client, you get to explain to them through images on paper, what you've been trained to do as an industrial designer. Part of my program when I'm working with a client is inspiring them to feel inspired. Mm, okay. Right? So I do all of my sketches, all of my stuff with pen and marker on purpose. Oh, wow. Right? So they're feeling like this is artwork, right? That's going to become reality. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that, yeah, that's a great shift. Yeah, that's an interesting way of, of thinking about it. That it is, because I, I know these pieces are not cheap. No. Custom furniture is, is an investment and should be. Right. But yeah, thinking of it as an art piece, I'm, I'm sure you're, you know, it, it, for your clients, you know, is it easy to convince them that this is an art piece or, or some it, it, that you have to drag mm -hmm. along? Well, I, I have an expensive home. I want expensive things for the ability to say I have expensive stuff. Yeah. Or is uh, it I want an expensive piece because I want that level of artistry mm -hmm. behind it? Well, here's what's a little bit frustrating for an industrial designer in this field and for a maker as well probably too, which is you see these really, really luxe, really high-end pieces mm. that people are spending a lot of money on. And these are big-name people, actors yeah. or music artists, these kinds of things. They are investing in things to say that they have something unique, that sure. it's uniquely theirs. Yeah. But what I see is a unique piece of art. Okay. Right? Art can be uncomfortable. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yes. And, yeah. And it can still be beautiful uh -huh. and it can still be unique. But do they ever actually sit in that chair? Mm -hmm. Or do they just stand next to it during an editorial? Yeah. When they're doing their magazine spread. Yeah. And so the chair you're sitting in, right? Mm -hmm. That is a 50 year old chair. Mm hmm. It is the most comfortable chair I probably ever It is. Sat I mean, in. I'm sitting in the most uncomfortable way and I'm not uncomfortable. Right. Yeah. And so all the pieces that are vintage that you see in my house are not because they're made by a specific designer or that they are a name brand of some kind. Mm -hmm. And that's what I tell people. Mm -hmm. I don't tell people this is a Danish thing. This is Eames chair. This is that, blah, 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 blah. This is a Cato. Mm -hmm. People may ask mm -hmm. and I'll tell them, mm -hmm. right? But that's not where I start the conversation if it becomes a conversation. Okay. What I like to explain to people is these are ways that I understand how something should be developed successfully. 
These are references. Oh, okay. Right? An Eames chair, there is nothing about an Eames chair that you buy today in 2021 that is more innovative than this one I'm sitting in right here, which is a first generation chair. Oh, wow. Which is... Early 60s. Yeah, okay. Right? Late 50s, early 60s. Yeah. So, molded plywood. Innovation of its time. Yeah. Are they still doing molded plywood on the chairs? Of yes. course, yeah. Right? Not an innovation now. Yeah. Not a high-end product material. Right. Yeah. Everything, all the way down to the bottom of design, can now have the manufacturing process of molded plywood. It's been made affordable, mm -hmm. right? And that's what happens. You always start at a pinnacle brand that does something that's expensive and difficult and new, and then it slowly trickles down as it becomes more affordable, mm -hmm. right? That happens with everything. It's yeah. inevitable. Yeah. That's innovation. That's the good thing. That's how innovation works, yeah. right? And so getting back to the Eames chair though, what about the cushions are innovative? Okay, well they were down cushions when it was first released. Mm -hmm. That's not innovative actually. Mm -hmm. A lot of things were filled with down, Yeah. right? So what else was innovative about the chair? Okay, the proportion and its ability to support a body. Mm -hmm. Actually, no, <laughs> right? There's a lot of things about it that aren't very comfortable if you are a certain body type. Yeah. Right? You have to actually fit. I'm 5'9". Mm -hmm. You have to be between, in my opinion, 5'8 and 6'3 to comfortably sit in this chair. Yeah. Without having a sore back or without your feet hanging. You know, if you're 5' foot or 5'3 yeah. and you're male or female, your feet are not touching the floor. Yeah. So there's a lot of things about innovation that are great from a materials point of view. And then there's a lot of things in development that you don't see right away, no matter how many times you try to develop it. Mm. This is not the first chair they made. Yeah. They made a hundred chairs before yeah. they released this chair, right? Yeah. And this is just the best version of it. Which is, it's interesting you, you're, you're making a point of that because when you look at an Ames chair, you're like, I'm 5'9", 5'10", and, and a big guy, I'm going, I don't know if I'm gonna be able to get out of that chair. Right. And you look at it and go, I don't want to sit in that chair because I'm going to look like a turtle on my back. But then you sit and you're like, oh, I, it, it, it's, it, 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 you almost have to drag people by the hand, I'm guessing, mm -hmm. or actually drag people by the hand to get them to understand what you're trying to get them to understand. Right. And the point of this particular chair, right, from the start was luxury materials with comfort, right? They were not promising the pinnacle of perfection in either side. Okay. They're just showing you what can be done with innovation and how they can manipulate something, wood in this case, mm -hmm. that's not supposed to do yeah. what people thought it could do. You know, there's a lot of designers out there that say that molded plywood is basically like the degradation of wood, <laughs> right? You're forcing it to do something that it doesn't naturally do. Right. And as a designer, there's a lot of people out there that think, well, you should be sourcing your materials and understanding that those materials should be used for a purpose as they naturally occur, right? Okay. And so, of course, molded plywood has allowed things to be strong, lightweight, durable, and eventually affordable now, mm -hmm. right? But there was a lot of people that just saw it as you are 
forcing the material to do something that it doesn't do on its own. Mm. And so that's not right. You know, you shouldn't do that. Yeah. And then, I mean, and then looking at your work, you're using a lot of, a lot of metal, mm -hmm. which, you know, you've done that on purpose. You know, I want you to explain why, but you know, the first person's like, metal, how's that going to be comfortable? Right. It's metal. It's heavy. Metal, it's going to hurt. Metal, it's going to scratch my floor. Mm -hmm. But there's a reason behind this. Yeah. And, you know, we don't exclusively do metal. The piece you're looking at yeah. is metal, and it's got velvet on it to give that feeling of luxury and approachable. You know, it's soft to the touch, mm -hmm. so it becomes approachable, and it's that juxtaposition of the hard, cold metal with something that's very inviting and approachable. And then you have the leather on here, which kind of is the bridge between the two. Okay. Right? So leather, it's warm, mm -hmm. but it can be cold. Yeah. Really cold day, your leather seats could be cold. Yeah. Really hot day, your leather seats could be hot. This is bridging, literally bridging the metal frame visually with the soft velvet, mm -hmm. right? And then it's inviting enough to say, yeah, okay, like I can touch it, I can lean against it, I'm not gonna feel a hard surface, mm -hmm. you know? But it's also rigid enough to show surface and show intention. Mm. Right? And even on the Eames chair that I'm sitting in, you know, there's only so much surface that can be controlled, right? When you're looking at the cushions, right? They don't all fit in to the wood frame right. perfectly. Yeah, it's not, right? it's, not a, it's not a snap to fit. Right, because those cushions are being dictated by a structure, a cell structure that's not rigid, mm -hmm. right? And the development and the innovation of a product like this that I'm sitting in, that's where you can see the innovations when you look at an Eames chair specifically, mm -hmm. right? As they went from downfilled, right? Mm -hmm. To injection molded foam. Okay. Just like an automobile. Yeah. Right? And so now those injection molded foam surfaces, those complex surfaces, mm -hmm. which are not perfectly flat. Yeah. They have some curve to them in all directions, right? Mm -hmm those are now being dictated through a mold, right? Those are being injection molded mm -hmm. so that they do fit directly okay. into the hard portions, right? The mm -hmm. hard parts mm -hmm. of the product. Mm -hmm. And so the innovation has come through refinement, okay. not breaking the mold, so mm -hmm. to speak, okay. right? And, and is that, I mean, th this is that, that one question I, that, that's kind of out there that, you know, on the furniture design part that comes up and you know where you get inspiration from and it's just one of those questions I have because it's such a a common topic with anybody working with interior designers and thinking about design and there's no polite way to ask it but what's the friggin deal with mid-century modern why is yeah. it so why is it so popular I mean I don't know why I like it I don't know why I buy it I don't know why I see it all the time but it does seem to be everlasting or at least Portions of it? What's um, the deal with it? <laughs> yeah, this is obviously my opinion. It's my professional opinion, but mm -hmm. also my opinion as a collector too. So I'm personally invested in these pieces mm -hmm. as well as I look at them from a professional point of view as an industrial designer. Okay. And so I think that on the whole, if you look at it big picture, mid-century modern as it will, if you were looking at it in book terms, mm -hmm. right, is 
an era of innovation. Okay. Right? Okay. In terms of materials being applied to normally occurring things. Right? And so that time period, you see a lot of very simple shapes. That's a cube. Yeah. Right? But then it has a bird's eye maple applied to it in a very unique and aesthetically pleasing way. Right? It's been what we call butterflied. Mm -hmm. on the doors mm -hmm. right so it's not just book matched where it looks like a mirror of itself but it looks like a mirror that's been folded on a mirror again yeah right so you see literally what looks to be a butterfly yeah because the material has been manipulated in an innovative way yeah the grain and the, then the structure it's like you're seeing organic shapes in this right aggressive cube form and so for instance for me as an industrial designer and as a creator and someone that's developing my own brand and my own products, when I look at this, I don't look at this as a beautiful piece of furniture only, right? Like an interior designer may, mm -hmm. or another consumer might just look at this and say, I love this because it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. I look at this and I say, someone had to experiment, test, right, fail, invest more time and more money to understand how do I develop these four pieces of wood veneer in such a way that one is appealing and two, it's unique, right? So they're taking a material that's commonly used. There's nothing innovative about the wood, mm -hmm. but they're manipulating it to make it an innovative and then, and then repeatable, because this is not this was not a bespoke piece. Correct. This and was at repeatable. some point off off of a line at some. And that goes right back to industrial design. Wow. Which is okay. how repeatable is it? Okay. How much can we anticipate? Right? Because they do have a term called scrap rate. Yeah. Right? So scrap rate basically is understanding how many times you will fail in one area of the manufacturing process versus the investment for those parts, right? So can you afford to fail 20% of the time based on what you're investing in those products mm -hmm. or a portion of that product in the appeal to the public? Right. Is the public gonna see the value and is it worth that 20% failure? Okay. Right? Yeah, because as you've spoken, you know, I'm looking at these gorgeous veneers and yes, a maker could knock out what 16 panels here and probably burn twice as many but for a one-off piece it's Correct. not it's not a thing right it's cost of doing business this is my one yeah. thing whatever in fact you'll probably buy three times that amount of veneer as myself even mm. when i'm making a custom piece oh wow i'm buying that already knowing mm. that's my scrap rate yeah i'm and not then, buying just one piece but you as the industrial designer is going okay there's a reason behind this right yeah okay and so okay. from a manufacturing point of view you have to understand what is the scrap rate and is it worth it okay you know and, and so that mid-century modern that makes a lot more sense to me mm -hmm. on the understanding of design now of oh okay it looks good but how they got there was a real turning point and it's a that turning point hasn't gotten that much more it's so good that's like, I, I want to respect that right. and become and, part of that. And the innovations that happened during the mid-century modern time 
are innovations in the use of materials. Got it. And we've continued to do that with 3D printing sure, and sure. plastics yeah. and recycling yeah. and all those different things. But the other thing to really consider is this mid-century era and the innovation of how materials were used is also heavily dictated by what part of the world the items were being made in. Mm -hmm. So a French mid-century piece is going to be just as beautiful as this piece, which mm -hmm. is made in the United States, mm -hmm. right? But the culture behind the design and what inspires people in that part of the world mm -hmm. will make it unique in itself, sure. right? And that goes back to cars or anything else, right. but for the mid-century part of design, in my opinion, it makes the availability to have one mid-century piece among contemporary pieces possible. Okay. Right? Okay. Because so it does, you know, again, to pun it out, uh, it does dovetail into more contemporary right. things very well because of the innovation. Right. Because there's such a wide range of aesthetics within the mid-century era, mm -hmm. if you want to... There's actual dates. I don't know exactly what they yeah, are, but yeah. I want to say it's about 53 to 71. Oh, geez. Okay, so that's a large... Yeah. This is a large swath of time. Yes. Okay. And so you have a lot of innovations and you have a lot of different cultures developing those innovations, mm -hmm. right? And so you come across one piece, that might be the central theme of a whole room. Yeah. And I don't think we've gone into another design era, if you will. You know, you get into the 80s, you start looking at We all know what the 80s look, we all know what the 80s look like. A it lot of different, hasn't quite held. Not the same, but again, I think it's because of the materials being developed during that time. Sure. A lot of acrylic. A lot of plastics, yeah. a lot of things that were designed to be low cost mm -hmm. in general. And mm -hmm. that's an innovation in itself. Yeah. You're developing products that are making the product more available to someone that doesn't have as much income. Mm -hmm. That's great. Yeah. That's yeah. a great thing. Yeah, that, that's know? that's championing that is important. Yeah. yeah, but that also means that those products might not last as long. Mm -hmm. But that's not the point. Yeah. Right? The point is making it available to that person right then because they need it. Mm -hmm. Right? And so it all comes back to innovation not necessarily being built well. Right? We all know they were built well because, quite frankly, they're being made by the same companies that were making stuff in the 30s. Mm. At this point, right? Yeah. If the company's making this in 1965 and they're putting it out to masses, they were most likely in business in 1945. Okay. Right? You can't ramp that <laughs> fast. Right. Okay. You yeah, know? yeah. So that makes sense. they already know how to make quality furniture. Mm -hmm. Now it's just the aesthetic. Okay. Right? And the aesthetic, I think, has just taken hold because it can be the centerpiece of a room or it can be something that falls back. There is an industrial design sense to this mid-century modern concept where it, it, it's that perfect marriage of there's a lot of smart thinking mm -hmm. holding up the creative veneer that's wrapped around everything. Absolutely. Okay. And within this time also, it's, it's really important to remember that you have architects of all generations and all cultures as well coming together 
in the industrial design industry and kind of birthing it in a way in the 30s and 40s and even in the 50s, architects and industrial designer and furniture designer and product designer, they were all kind of in the same group. Got you know, it. they're not yeah. as separated as they are now. Sure, because there are those those show places that you and, and showpiece buildings and architectural when you see those architectural photos like everything fits right what's the the, the famous house in la that's in every movie the uh, my brain fell apart with all the co- it's in the big lebowski and it's in oh, so yeah. the with all the concrete yeah you know yeah you know we, we failed class today right. <laughs> and, and but i think that's a good point that i should just bring up which is there's this term i like to use called name dropping okay or brand dropping right mm-hmm. and I will be the last one to ever say that I know the name of every single designer that developed every single thing I own Mm -hmm. or anything I've ever seen in a picture. Mm -hmm. That's not what I'm about. Yeah. It's inspiring to me to see how they made something that was a successfully functioning product. And I'm using that as reference because you have to. There are books, but there's not a book, right? You have to be looking and referencing things continuously and understanding how did they build it? Does it have weak points? Okay, it's a 50-year-old chair. Is there a broken part? Is there a part that seems like it's not well-worn at all? Like, it just held up. Yeah, how did did that happen? And how do I duplicate that? Or how do I use that as part of my development process? You know? And... When you're talking about this time and my furniture specifically, I'm always looking at stuff from, now here's a name drop, Raymond Lowy mm-hmm. or Frank Lloyd Wright. These are very common names in the yeah. industry. These are yeah. not obscure names. Right. There's right. a lot of obscure people. These that, are Jeopardy questions. This right. is, this is you know, everybody knows this. And there's a lot of people that contributed so much to the industry that I don't know their names. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't know their names. You know, they're from all around the world and they're contributing something to the innovation of some large project or some very small product. But someone like Raymond Lowy or someone like Frank Lloyd Wright, it's important to remember that Frank Lloyd Wright, for instance, is noted as an architect. But you go into a Frank Lloyd Wright hotel or a Frank Lloyd Wright house, 95% of everything that's in the structure is also designed by him. Even the carpet, right? The print on the carpet designed by Frank Lloyd Wright, right? That's an industrial design job. That's a graphic design job. The chairs designed by Frank Lloyd Wright. Are they built by him? Maybe not. But the concept of understanding that all the furniture had to tie into where the furniture was going to live was developed by the same person. Now we just do it as a team. Right, And that goes back to me talking about understanding your brand, the brand you're working for. Frank Lloyd Wright was his own brand, in a sense. Mm-hmm. He's designing the building. Yeah. He understands architecture. He understands science and math. But he's also looking at the small picture stuff like how are people experiencing what's inside the building? Because that's the part you experience. You only see the outside. Right. I mean, you can You see when you drive up to it and go, there it is. It's nice. You can have a feeling Mm -hmm. and you might experience it by having a well-maintained room 
or the bathroom is a certain size and it functions well. And those architectural features might be important. But the fact is, the thing you're experiencing, just like when you get a car, right? You are not experiencing the exterior surfacing, right? Not physically. It's not interacting with you. It might inspire or it might conjure up a sense of excitement, right? When you look at it, but it's not an interaction until you open the door. And even the act of like pulling the lever for the door, what does that feel like? Yeah. How do you get in? Do you push a button? Do you pull on the lever? Do you twist the lever? Right. All these kinds. Of, so you don't really start your experience until that starts, right? And so it's the same thing with furniture. You're inspired or excited by the way something looks. It looks comfortable. Is it comfortable? You don't know. Yeah. You haven't sat on it yet, right? Does it work for your body type? Is it a chair you're gonna sit in to watch TV? Or is it a chair you're gonna sit in to conduct interviews? This all matters. And the story of my business as it relates to industrial design versus the maker is I'm trying to understand that before I'm designing the furniture. So there you have it, some great advice and a great story. And I hope you took some notes because if you've ever dreamed about a career in art and design, more and more art and design career opportunities are on the rise and employers are on the hunt for the next generation of talented and of course skilled creative professionals. Here at Academy of Art University, you will get those work-ready skills that employers want. You can study on-site in downtown San Francisco and of course anywhere in the world with our online programs. To request info about our 40 plus areas of study in art and design, including game development, industrial design, illustration and fine art, just visit our website at academyart.edu slash creative mind. My name is Bobby Brill. Thanks for listening.